Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How you feeling, buddy? I'm feeling much better. I don't know if it was 24-hour flu or food poisoning or whatever it was, but for about 24 hours, I thought I was going to die. And <laughs> about 24, hour, 24 hours and two minutes later, I woke up, and I felt perfectly wonderful. So whatever it was, thankfully, it came and went. Well, we are glad that, uh, it came and went because we are here to do what we set out to do originally. And uh, we still wanted to uh, have a show load for you guys on Monday at 6 AM, just like always. And, uh, we did a best of episode of 83 weeks, but now we're here to cover what we finally set out to do. It's all about when worlds collide. And I wanted to talk about this pay-per-view for a variety of reasons, but the biggest of which really is there's a lot of similarities here. I feel like between you know, the all in pay-per-view that really set forth what we now know as AEW and this pretty monumental pay-per-view that went down, believe it or not, 25 years ago tomorrow, it was, uh, November 6th, 1994, right there in Los Angeles, California. But before we talk about the pay-per-view and WCW's involvement, let's sort of set the stage. AAA decided to run in Chicago and in New York in July. Chicago was on the 23rd of July and it drew 5,200 fans, 4,425 of those paid a $97,000 gate. Now that may not seem like a lot, but in 1994, it was a lot to provide context to that number. WCW's pay-per-view spring stampede back in April only did 107,000. So 10,000 more. And the main event was steamboat and flare. And again, this is a Chicago, this is a market that's had WCW TV forever. And the WWE ran one of their WrestleMania revenge house shows in that same area, 103,000. Only a handful of promoters have ever drawn 4,000 fans, you know, back then or now put into context, how big it is to have a near six figure gate in 1994. Well, from WCW's perspective, my perspective, you know, that $100,000 gate was like such an elusive target. It was, and I know it sounds funny to talk about it now, but in context, you know, back in 92, 93, early 94, um, WCW typically, you know, there were pay-per-views where we wouldn't draw $45,000. We'd have to paper the house. We've talked about this, you know, in different ways at different times on this show. But WCW was, again, 92, 93 in particular, had really ruined not only their live event business, but had ruined pay-per-views. And the way they ruined their pay-per-views, one of the ways, was papering the house. And, you know, occasionally you have to paper house or your paper house a little bit to, to kind of, you know, make it look good for television and things like that. But when it becomes standard operating procedure to paper your houses for television and pay-per-views and you go to the same markets over and over and over again, it doesn't take long for the market to realize that I don't have to buy a ticket because they're going to end up giving them away a couple days before the, you know, the show starts. So no matter how good the show is, and no matter what you do to promote this show, you've already preconditioned the audience or the market to wait until the last minute because they're going to get their tickets for free. 
And you know, I, I look. I've done it. You know, I've I've I've, I've papered houses before to to certain extents, uh, and I understand the logic and why you have to do it. And I'm sure it's still done, you know, by every wrestling promotion today, to a certain degree. Some of that, by the way. Some of that paper's promotional, so you'll you'll give away tickets to a local radio station or television station or whatever um, to to help promote and get free publicity in the market. And that that's one thing, okay? That's a necessary part of promoting. But when you start giving tickets away and putting them on the windshields of people parked in a parking lot and you know literally handing them out to the homeless, at that point you've devalued your product so much in the marketplace that. It, it it becomes like manifest destiny. Um, your, your business is in the toilet. And that took place in WCW for such a long time. So that if occasionally we would hit a 50 or 60 or $75,000 house, it was like, holy smokes, you know. People like Gary Justin would be high-fiving themselves. Um, so that $100,000, you know, gate was – for WCW, it, it was really elusive until – 94, 95, we couldn't consistently hit that figure for a long, long time. So uh, it, it was no easy feat to hit that mark. The New York show went down at the Paramount. It drew 3,300 fans. That's 2,800 paid and a $99,000 gate. And that's the best gate for a non WWF show in years in the market. And even bigger than the past two house shows that the WWF ran in that same market. Still, the show wasn't profitable. Uh, but here's the interesting note I found in my research. There was only like 16,000 in advanced sales just a few days ahead of time. And the rest was all walk up and obviously walk up, save the day here. When you go from 16 grand to $99,000. So quickly when you were running WCW, what were the best walk up markets for you? Uh, I think the ones that stand out and you and I talked about this the other day, uh, Baltimore was always a good walk up market for us. Um, Chicago was a good market for us. Uh, typically the South was not. And again, I'll, I'll go back to, because we had, you know, WCW for such a long time had, had focused primarily on the Southeast part of the United States. That's where they ran the majority of their house shows and did all their TV tapings and pay-per-views and such. Uh, and they have preconditioned the audience to realize that, you, you know, you don't have to buy anything in advance. You'll get it for free, as we talked about moments ago. So the South really wasn't much of a you know, walk-up market for us. When we did venture out, um, like I said, Chicago, Baltimore was usually pretty good. Um, I remember Detroit was pretty decent as a walk-up market. Uh, those are the ones that stand out. There may have been others, but those are the ones that stand out in my mind. Explain to some of our listeners why New York is so expensive to run. I mean, you hear a $99,000 gate and you assume, oh, we're making money. But JR has even said on Grill and JR that sometimes they would have a sellout at Madison Square Garden and they would still lose money, which is just remarkable when you sell out you know, that many seats in the biggest market with a very expensive ticket and you're still not profitable. What are some of the challenges to finding profit in New York? Everything is everything is much more expensive, you know. Little little known secret: I, I will occasionally, and I mean very occasionally, go out and buy a package of these little cigars called Backwoods cigars, and I, I may maybe do that. I don't know, four times a year, and I just get in the mood, right? And these are this little packet of cigars generally. 
in Cody, I'll pay six bucks for them. You know, I, I don't know what they cost here in Connecticut. I haven't bought a pack since I've been here. But you go to New York, which is the last place I bought a pack of these when I was in New York last, and they were $20. I mean, everything in New York is three or four times more expensive than it is anywhere else. Maybe three or four times is exaggerating. Probably two or three times more expensive. You know, the cost of running an arena, and a lot of it has to do with the unions. Um, you go to a, a market like, you know, New York City, and you want to stage an event, you know, the unions require that you staff it a certain way. The, the costs of that staffing are substantially higher than they are anywhere else. Um, you don't get as good of a split on merchandise. And if you do get a cut of refreshments and, and concessions and things like that, it's a much smaller one. I'm guessing in New York, you probably don't even get it. So it's just, you know, it's great to promote in a market like New York because you get a tremendous amount of exposure. And if you're trying to brand yourself and establish yourself in a market, there's no better place in the world to put out an event than in New York, but you almost have to chalk it up as a marketing expense because the ability to make money in, in a place like New York is so, so difficult, especially in some place like Madison Square Garden or some of the bigger venues. Now, if you really want to complicate it uh, and make it harder, start trying to produce television there. Now you really, really are going to be under the gun because, again, union costs and the the requirements by the local unions and how you staff it and what the production is like and how many people you have to have on a crew, all of those things um, are doubled, tripled, maybe even quadrupled compared to you know other non-union markets. So even though the numbers are strong for both Chicago and New York, the promotion is effectively breaking even here. And, and one of those big line items that we haven't really discussed that matters here is the travel cost of the talent. You know, historically, a lot of WWF talent was based in the Northeast. So, uh, that's a different level of travel expense compared to flying a bunch of guys in from Mexico or Southern California. And a gentleman named Ron Scholar headed the promotion of these shows. And this is not a name most fans are familiar with. Do, do you remember having any interaction with Ron? I don't believe I ever met Ron in person. I may have talked to him once or twice on the phone briefly but I you know obviously I know his name is very familiar when you sent over the notes for the show uh, but I, I don't think I ever met him face to face in early 93 we should mention uh, Ron Scholar was an entertainment attorney and a friend of wrestling talk show host John Arezzi who I believe ran the first wrestling convention of its sort uh, he approached business associates in the music field about promoting Mexican wrestling in cities that had a large Mexican population in the US and eventually they made the connection with both Conan, um, who by this time, I guess is probably the largest drawing card in Mexico. I, I do want to mention the reason I'm, I'm bringing up Chicago and New York is, you know, AAA had had success running shows in California. They had done record houses. In fact, they had drawn the biggest house in decades, just one year prior back in 1993, but there was a real concern as to how much of a draw a Hispanic product would do in a major market in the Midwest or the East coast. At this point, we'll call it, you know, summer of 94. Was the success of Lucha Libre in California on your radar as you're trying to find ways to differentiate WCW? 
It really wasn't. And here's where one of the, you know, as you know, when you and I talked about doing a show, I was hesitant to do it. And I want to kind of be honest with our listeners. This, this pay-per-view was an experiment for me in WCW. This was not a, a high profile, you know, intense initiative that, you know, we had considered for a long time and strategized over. This was really an experiment. And while I was totally unfamiliar, I wanted to say that I wasn't totally unfamiliar with Lucha Libre because every once in a while I'd find it on my television if I was surfing through the channels on the weekend and, and was interested in it. But I wasn't a huge fan of it. I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. I was just aware of it. It's probably the most honest way to to frame it. But what what did end up on my radar, uh, around this time, I had a meeting in Los Angeles with a company. It was, it was, when I say company, it was a small company, a group of really, really smart guys who had the NFL rights to Mexico. And they were distributing NFL content in Mexico. And in addition to that, they were building a business, promoting live events to different areas around the United States. I'll use one for an example. Uh, I remember specifically Pasco, Washington, for example. Now, if you, you know, our listeners, unless you live there or you live in the state of Washington, probably nobody. Nobody's ever heard of Pasco, Washington. It's an agri- it's a small market. It's an agricultural market, I believe, in the eastern part of Washington. And I don't think I've ever heard or read about anything in the news about Pasco, Washington. However, there's a very dense population of Hispanic workers that migrate up from Mexico legally and probably some illegally. Now, we're going back to 94, so a lot of it was illegal. And, you know, our government just kind of looked the other way and everybody accepted it. It was no big deal at the time. Uh, But what would happen is for about nine months out of the year, you'd have these huge populations of migrant uh, farm workers that come up from Mexico. Most of them, you know, didn't speak English. Uh, Most of them were probably illegal. And as a result, they kind of they stayed within their own little communities and they didn't go outside their communities. <clears throat> and this company would promote Mexican they would Mexican music festivals, for example, was one of their big business items. So they would identify these markets where there was these high densities of Hispanics and Mexicans that would come up and work, you know, throughout the spring, summer, and fall. Uh, with nothing to do, and they were being paid daily. They had a lot of discretionary income, didn't necessarily have credit cards, didn't necessarily feel comfortable stepping outside of their their community where they all uh, lived and worked. Uh, So this company would come in, and they would stage these different music festivals, and they would make a fortune doing it because it was the only entertainment this population had. They would work hard all day long, probably five, six, seven days a week, you know, 12, 15 hours a day, and then come Friday night or Saturday night, you know, they, they they had nothing to do unless somebody brought in entertainment that was familiar to them, whether it be music or, or in this case, the idea was to start bringing in professional wrestling that was native to their culture. So when I heard about their business model, 
and saw what they were doing in terms of not only exporting American uh, entertainment vis-a-vis the NFL to Mexico, but importing uh, Hispanic or Mexican uh, entertainment into these different markets around the United States that were completely underserved by any other form of entertainment, that that's what got my attention. And that probably was the catalyst to get me to explore doing something with AAA and doing something with these, you know, with the Hispanic um, uh, product more than anything else. It wasn't that I was hearing – you know, all these great things from, you know, the dirt sheets or, you know, even internally from some of my own people. Uh, it was that, you know, in this meeting, I learned that there's a way to, you know, create a business model that's a little bit different than we typically do uh, by reaching an underserved market. And that, like I said, that was really the catalyst for everything. Let's talk about uh, Galavision. The, the fascinating thing about this show in particular is although there are, I'm talking about the New York house show, although there are five and a half million households in that New York market, only 250,000 have the Galavision station to see the product. But that is a, a, a centrally important station to the Hispanic market. And over the years, both WCW and the WWF tried to get with Galavision and create some products for them. Can you speak about Turner's interest as a, a corporate entity in the Hispanic television market. Did you have any discussions to that effect? Not really. Um, all, all of our, when I say our, I mean, WCW's interest in the Hispanic market and trying to break into it was really just about our own business model. I never really dealt with Turner Broadcasting's international division uh, directly when it came to, to trying to expand and, develop relationships with other um, international broadcast outlets these shows in particular the chicago and new york shows are a lot like the show we're going to be covering when worlds collide or the reason for this podcast they've got a lot of names people may be familiar with eddie guerrero and he's got a tag partner named art bar and they're the love machines laparca's on this psychosis conan a lot of the minis including the ones that you saw on the wwf like masquerita sagrada and even american names like tito santana who obviously He's not American, but you know, well, he is, you know what I mean? He made his name on American soil as did two cold Scorpio. And believe it or not, Jake Roberts is even along for this. You and I have never talked about this. What, what sort of interaction did you have with Jake during his, his very brief WCW run? Very little, uh, Jake was in and out very briefly when I was still an announcer at WCW. I think I worked with him on television a couple times <clears throat> on the syndicated show. Uh, not on WCW Saturday night, but on, I think it was called WCW pro was the name of the syndicated show that I worked on. Uh, probably only a handful of times, not a lot of interaction, never really got to know him personally, never really talked to him outside of just the work that had to be done on any given night. We should also mention that, um, the report from the newsletter is, uh, after on the heels of these two successful shows, Chicago and New York, that there's going to be a November pay-per-view. And at the time they thought it would be in San Jose. That was the first market they looked at. And here's the direct quote with WCW sharing in the promotion of the show and tentative plans are for some AAA matches to appear on the WCW cable shows leading up to the event. Gary Jester of WCW was at the New York show 
as was former professional wrestling promoter and current baseball owner, uh, Eddie Einhorn, while AAA promoter Antonio Pena was in Orlando for the WCW show. You can expect some sort of tie-in to be more obvious over the next few months. So it does feel like for Jester to be in New York and for Pena to be in Orlando, the concept was on your radar prior to these shows. When do you remember thinking, Hey, this may be worth a look. Oh, you know, I don't remember the specific date. Like I said, you know, we, we, as we talked about a few moments ago, the idea of trying to find a way to create a niche into the Hispanic marketplace was on my radar. I don't know, probably early 94, mid 94. I can't remember the date, uh, but it was definitely developing in 94. Who pitched the idea of partnering with another promotion? And I mean, you've explained why Mexican wrestling, but why AAA and not CMLL? I think that would have been Gary Jester. Uh, there was a reason that, you know, he was going to these shows. He took a particular interest in it. He was passionate about it. Um, he was a big part of our live event business at that time for better or worse. <laughs> um, so it, it was really Gary Jester that, that was directing that, that initiative probably more than anybody else. So it would have been Gary behind the scenes. They have their own sort of challenges in AAA. This is in an era where Conan and Vampiro have some legit personal heat. They're both super big stars down there. And, uh, it looks like there's going to be. Um, I don't know. That thing can come to a head, but obviously if WCW wants to partner up, then, then maybe they would have an interest in that. Were you familiar with, or did you have discussions with WCW office members at all about the politics of Mexican wrestling going into this? Absolutely not. I, I, again, as I said, at the head of this and my disclaimer, this was an experiment. This was not a big initiative. This wasn't something that, <clears throat> You know, we were investing a ton of money into, or we we felt that we had to really um, put a ton of resources behind. It was an experiment. It, it, from my perspective, perspective, it was look. I know, anecdotally, there's a huge Hispanic marketplace out there. I'm not really sure the best way to get into that marketplace. I don't really understand that marketplace. Uh, and how to promote to it. I'm going to go back to the group that I met in LA as a reference point here because it, 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 it's relative. One of the things that I learned in, in speaking with this group, and I keep calling them this group because I can't remember the name of their company. They no longer exist. But um, they gave me you know, certain examples of how they were able to make as much money as they were making promoting these, you know, what would otherwise be these obscure little, you know, Mexican music concerts and, you know, parts of the country that nobody in the United States had ever heard of before. And they were making a hundred, $150,000 a weekend doing it. And one of the thing, you know, an example that they gave me is, look, if you're going to promote an event and you're trying to, you're promoting it for the Mexican population in the United States. Hispanic in general, but primarily Mexican, because a lot of a lot of people don't understand, you know, when you say Hispanic, you know, to most people in the United States, well, that includes Mexicans and Puerto Ricans and you know people from Dominican Republic, and that's not really true. I mean, it, it's it's true, I guess, in a general sense, but you can't promote to a Puerto Rican audience the same way you would promote to a Mexican audience or the same way you would pro to, uh, promote to a Cuban audience 
or Dominican Republican audience. They're, they're very different cultures. And by the way, they don't always play well together. And if, if, if you're promoting, for example, you're promoting, you're, you're trying to attract a, a, a Mexican migrant, you know, population to an Hispanic or excuse me, a Mexican music festival. Uh, and you put Puerto Rican talent, you know, on that, on that list, uh, you're going to offend the Mexican community and vice versa. So there's a lot of really subtle nuances to promoting to the Hispanic marketplace. If, if you promote it, as, if you approach it as, oh, I'm going to do some Hispanic business, well, you're starting off on the wrong foot because you're not really recognizing that there's segments of the Hispanic audience that react and, and, and are inspired and will will react positively to certain types of things. One example that they gave me is, you know, look, if you're, if you're going to promote a music concert, for example, to the Mexican, you know, migrant community in Pasco, Washington, you, number one, it has to be at the right venue because there are certain venues that they feel comfortable in and certain venues that they don't. And if you go into that venue, you need to be sure, for example, I know this sounds you know obscure and kind of like it wouldn't matter, but it's one of the reasons why some people fail at this type of thing is you have to have certain types of concessions that they're familiar with. You know, for example, pork rinds are a very, I know this is really kind of, it sounds silly to talk about this in the context of a beer, broader pay-per-view initiative, but these are the little bits and pieces of, of insight that I was kind of working from that inspired me to experiment the way we're experimenting with this particular pay-per-view. But if you are in the right venue, but you're serving the wrong concessions, the chances are you're going to bomb because you're not giving that audience what they're familiar with and what they're looking forward to. So there, I knew enough to know that there were a lot of little nuances that I had to learn before we could really put a lot of initiative behind you know, trying to promote to the, you know, the, the Mexican American culture or the migrant Mexican culture or the Hispanic culture in general, um, which is why I was taking these steps and, and kind of putting my toe in the water and learning as I went, as opposed to, you know, throwing a ton of resources and making a big statement and, 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 and trying to come off, you know, in a huge way. I knew what I didn't know. And I, I keep, I keep going back to that. You know, sometimes I think in life, this is a sidebar, you know, knowing what you don't know is probably the most important thing in being successful. And in this case, I knew what I didn't know about promoting to the Hispanic culture, which is why I was engaging with people like, you know, AAA and others to try to learn about that business. I know I went off tangent there. I apologize for that. No, no. I mean, the the gist of what you're saying is if you're going to do it, you need to be authentic. And I think that's. You know, I mean, we hear that in wrestling all the time. You don't want guys who are quote unquote playing wrestling. They need to be a wrestler and be authentic. And the same thing about cuisine, you know, to your point, you know, if you're, there's a difference between someone pretending they know how to cook Mexican food and, and an authentic Mexican restaurant. So that makes sense. We should mention uh, AAA is going to run another show in Los Angeles in August. This time they'll have just over 8,000 fans in attendance, 7,569 paid. It's a $145,000 house. And you heard Eric talk about how elusive it was to hit that $100,000 gate. And even their own spring stampede in Chicago only did 107. Meltzer would write, for perspective, it still is almost as many paid fans as WCW drew for the Flair Hogan match and a larger live gate and a better quality show as far as that is concerned. 
but it's still the smallest crowd and worst of the four shows in the Los Angeles area that AAA and IWC have ran together since their debut a year prior, August 28th, 1993, having never drawn less than 12,500 fans and $197,000 gate. Now, the reason I bring up this LA show in August of 94 in particular is it's notable for one major reason. Ray Mysterio Jr. got the world's attention. Meltzer would write, the real star of this show was Ray Mysterio Jr., the teenager who is the best flying wrestler in the United States or any country he decides to step foot in in this hemisphere. Two nights earlier at a television taping in Tijuana, he overshot Juventud Guerrero on a flip dive and crashed into the floor, and it looked like he had broken his back. He wound up being carried from the ring while his brother and mother freaked out about him backstage. And I've seen this guy take planned bumps that would put a normal human being in a wheelchair and sell them big to lose matches, but be just fine at the end of the night without a major bruise. But this by his own admission was the most painful injury of his career. Two nights later, of course, here in LA, he's back in the ring, not only wrestling, like nothing was wrong, not only doing all the high risk spots, but showing only the slightest indication of his injury. But in the meantime, he stole the show. Is this the first time you hear about Ray in August of 94? Or when do you remember hearing about Ray? Or what do you remember hearing about Ray before you laid eyes on him? No, this was the first time I <clears throat> laid eyes on Ray and, and had taken note of Ray Mysterio. was at this event. Absolutely. Is there someone in WCW, you know, Bruce has talked about on something to wrestle that Howard Finkel would review tapes a lot. And, you know, folks would send tapes in, but he also would be seeking out tapes and if something caught his eye, he would bring it to Bruce or Vince and say, Hey, you need to take a look at this. Did WCW have a guy who did that? You know, that kind of thing typically would happen through either, you know, Terry Taylor or Kevin Sullivan or, or Ric Flair or, you know, anybody that was associated, Mike Graham from time to time would come in with tapes. <clears throat> Greg Gagne once in a while would come in with somebody that he was particularly interested in. So, I mean, uh, there wasn't one person who was designated as, you know, a scout, so to speak, or, or the filter through which all of these different, you know, tapes would come into WCW. There wasn't one person. It was something that, you know, pretty much everybody did that was associated with the creative side of things at WCW. Occasionally Zane Bresloff would, would come in <clears throat> with a recommendation or a videotape of somebody or, you know, obviously Gary Jester would, uh, as well. So it was, you know, it was kind of a combined effort, but there was no, there was not unlike WWF at the time, there was not one designated person. It was something that everybody was kind of involved in. Let's, uh, keep it moving here. This is an interesting piece of, uh, I don't know why this sticks out to me, but in late August, Dave would write the pay-per-view show WCW will work on in conjunction with AAA and Ron Scholar takes place on November 6th. There will be a AAA IWC show without any WCW wrestling talent involved. It will be the first attempt to run an ethnic wrestling pay-per-view wrestling show in this country. This of course being aimed at the Mexican American audience. What sticks out to me most about this is no WCW talent. What's the. What's the motivation? What's the thinking? Is this just strictly a business deal where you're going to sort of, uh, be the, I don't know, the silent partner where you're going to fund it and you're going to help promote a little bit. And then you take a piece on the back end because this is 94 to provide context. You're still trying to dig out and show that first piece of profit to Turner executives that WCW has never turned a profit by 1994. You've rolled the dice big on Hulk Hogan 
You just set all kinds of records a month prior at bash at the beach, 94 blew it out of the water, but you're still trying to dig for profit. Is that the strategy or what's thinking about, we're going to co-promote a pay-per-view, but not use any of our talent. Well, let's go back to what we were talking about earlier. I had learned from my associates in LA that the last thing that you want to do when you're promoting something to, to the Mexican American audience is, is to kind of force feed something that's not indigenous to their culture and their expectations. You know, the, the Mexican American audience didn't have any idea who WCW was, you know, a lot of the, again, and I, I hate to generalize this way because especially now, you know, 25, 26 years later, it's almost politically incorrect, but I'm just, it, it, it was what it was. Let's put it that way. When you've got, you know, massive, you know, amounts of uh, a massive number of Mexicans migrating into the United States for eight, nine, ten months of the year, six, eight, nine months of the year, and living in a very confined area and looking for entertainment that was indigenous to the way they grew up in Mexico. It was organic. I should say not indigenous. It was organic to what they were familiar with in Mexico. The last thing I wanted to do was try to put Sting in the middle of a show and have them all leaving, scratching their heads. Um, so my goal, again, as I said earlier, my goal was to put my toe in the water and to learn. This was an experiment. This was an educational effort. This was me trying – this was me recognizing that there was a big market. There was a, an underserved market. You know, at WCW, we had the logistics. We had the relationships with pay-per-view companies. We had a lot of things that these other companies didn't have, you know, behind the scenes, you know, logistically. Uh, And my goal was to take the resources we did have, the resources we did have, and offer them up, do a co-promotion so that I could learn more about the business I was trying to break into as opposed to coming in and you know, big footing my way in and trying to put in, you know, put Hulk Hogan on a, on a pay-per-view card that, you know, was targeted towards Mexican Americans or Sting or Randy Savage or whomever. Uh, I knew that wouldn't work. So it was really, again, as I said, starting this out, this was a learning experiment. This was okay. We know the market's there. We know there's a way to make money in it, but we don't know exactly how to do that quite yet. So let's take, a couple steps before we start running. And that's really what this pay-per-view is all about. We should also mention that it's reported here that WCW is going to attempt to not only promote the show to the Mexican audience, but also introduce that Mexican style of wrestling to the WCW audience. Uh, it's reported in late August that there's going to be four minute long segments every Sunday on WCW main event, which is their syndicated show starting on September 4th. And they're also going to broadcast the pay-per-view in both Spanish and English. Uh, and they're going to present it to the same folks who just bought the Julio Cesar Chavez fight because that fight did really, really well. Um, Meltzer would note that like most WCW shows, it's going to be scheduled to start at 7 PM Eastern and it'll be a Sunday and it'll last two hours and 47 minutes. And that's an interesting footnote because AAA major shows always run long. Uh, usually the shows they were running in LA were four hours or better and they're ending well after midnight. Uh, the first two triple mania shows prior to this actually lasted longer than that. 
And this is going to be a bit of an adjustment because uh, I don't think anybody who's watched wrestle kingdom knows those guys just, it feels like go as long as they want to in their matches. Whereas the pay-per-view would dictate that you've got to really hit your time cues. Was there any discussion to that point that you recall and would WCW have had some sort of an agent involved to really put that over to the talent that we've got to stick within these restraints? Uh, WCW didn't have an agent there, but we made it clear that, you know, we had a finite amount of satellite time. You know, when you're, you know, as, as I learned the hard way, you know, when you, when you put on a pay-per-view and you've got a three hour window and you go three hours and three minutes, you're fucked. Um, you'll lose your satellite time. So, I mean, that, that was a, that was a time limit that was dictated by the pay-per-view companies and the satellite time that they had allocated towards us. It wasn't an arbitrary number that we chose. It, it, it just, it, it was the model. It's what you had to do. Um, now today it's different with streaming, you know, that on the WWE network, if they choose to go three hours and three minutes or three hours and 33 minutes or four hours, they could do that. Because they have the network, <clears throat> they have the distribution, it's their call. But at this point in time, back in 1994, we were completely reliant upon the satellite feed that we were allocated by, you know, DirecTV and Dish and the other pay-per-view providers. And that had a three-hour time limit. So it it was what it was. It was communicated to, to everybody involved and it was up to them to get their shit in. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here and talk about Ron Scholar a little bit. He started promoting these AAA shows in the U S a year ago. His goal is to expand the base of popularity from the core Mexican population cities close to the border. And, um, Dave would go on to write that Scholar's backers are not longtime wrestling marks who are willing to lose money to have their faces be on television or get put over in angles, but they're also not wealthy businessmen or to write or, or, or to write dirt sheets. Well. The, the idea Sorry. is these guys are not wealthy to the point that, you know, losses don't create an immediate concern that uh, they're, they're promoting to turn a profit now. And so far so good. I mean, they've out, they've outdone what ECW or Smoky mountain or a lot of those companies were doing in this era. And at this point, they're interested in expanding for immediate profit, not necessarily building for the future where a lot of wrestling companies would sort of have that approach that almost feels more like a traditional indie promotion as opposed to say an AEW where, you know, you're going to have some red ink first or for that matter, TNA and, and WCW several years. Um, let's talk about the challenge. Dave wrote the audience in New York and Chicago, like Los Angeles and San Jose has consistently predominantly, uh, predominantly been made up of Mexican Americans who were exposed to this group via cable and Galavision in particular. And a small fatter, uh, small smattering of uh, hardcore fans. The attempted next step is really tricky: selling AAA wrestling to an English-speaking audience. How confident were you, or optimistic rather, were you that they could pull that off? Um, I was neither optimistic or pessimistic about it. I was interested in it. Again, I, I looked at it this as an opportunity to perhaps break into an underserved market. I was curious. That would probably be would probably best way to define the way I felt about this. It was just, I was curious. Uh, I didn't have the experience then that I do now. Um, I would have probably taken a little bit harder look at it 
and and maybe analyze it a little differently. But you know, even hearing you, you know, read what Dave wrote and talk about Scholar's approach here, I you know, I, I think it's fair to say Scholar was a visionary in a way. You know, if you look at this was ninety four, twenty six years later, you know, Lucha Libre is a part of our our pop culture. You know, not only Lucha Libre wrestling, but you know the the whole idea of of lucha libre and the imagery and the you know the you know for example I went into a Mexican restaurant uh, about a year and a half ago two years ago I was in Mexico or excuse me in uh, Arizona and there was just like all it was a great restaurant by the way it was a very 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 nice restaurant upscale restaurant but the entire restaurant was decorated in imagery of lucha libre you know wrestlers. So it, it's become, you know, we've had movies, you know, Nacho Libre. I mean, it's it's become a part of our culture. But back in 94, not too many people outside the Mexican-American community had ever heard about it. So at, at this, to really answer your question, I was, I was just interested. I was curious. I, I knew that there was an opportunity, but I didn't quite know how to tap into it. So um, I don't know how better to put that into, into context. Meltzer would write, it's been talked about from the start, but the talks are now more serious than ever to syndicate an English language one hour show, which is no doubt the key. And that's where the WCW relationship gets tricky. WCW and AAA are like the old TV show, the odd couple on the surface, each benefits the other, but ultimately they risk driving each other crazy uh, without examining the needs to each company on the surface. The relationship makes sense. AAA has tremendous potential in this country. And WCW has the connections with TBS syndication, television and pay-per-view and the knowledge of background and dealing with those industries to help them make the most of that. It's a win-win deal specifically. And this is the thing I want you to comment on. Meltzer says making a business connection between the two and making it work would be a tremendous feather in Eric Bischoff's cap. He took a new idea and a new concept that nobody else in wrestling had bothered to try and made it successful. I mean, that to me is who you were trying to be when you took over WCW, you were trying to innovate. You were trying to push the boundaries. You know, we're going to see more of that in a couple of years with the NWO. Would this have been a major feather in your cap? Had this been hugely successful? I guess, but that's not the way I looked at it. You know, and I know, you know, Dave has a tendency to look at everything from a kind of an ego perspective. I didn't think of it that way. I didn't think, wow, if I can put this together, it's a feather in my cap or, you know, my, my, the people that I report to are going to go, you know, wow, that Eric is really a visionary. It wasn't, my motivation was to make money. It's really fucking simple. You know, the idea that, you know, again, and, and Dave has a way to frame things in, in ways that project a, an image on someone else. I wasn't interested in a feather in my cap. I was interested in breaking a profit. I was interested in expanding my business. I was interested in finding ways to make my product different than the WWF product. Those are all things I was interested in. If there, if someone would have come along with a feather and stuck it in my hat, uh, I would have been great. Fuck you. Goodbye. Get that, get the feather out of my hat. But the money, that's what I was interested in. And I saw this as an opportunity, not to sound cold and callous about it, but that's really all that it was about. It was not about my ego or getting a pat on the back or being recognized for doing something that nobody else had ever done before. Some of that probably would have happened, but that's not, that wasn't my motivation. Here's the challenge. Meltzer would say, so what's the problem? Let's think of the next step. How does WCW introduce and promote AAA on this television? 
Hey folks, here's Mexican wrestling. Isn't it cute? Look at all the guys in masks flying around doomed kiss of death. Remember the first TBS plug It said our friends at Lucha Libre are running a show at the Los Angeles sports arena with Conan and Perry Aguayo. And while it was a nice gesture, the WCW plugged the LA show twice on cable and several times on local syndication in LA. What was the result of those quick television plugs? Zilch. I didn't see one unfamiliar non-Mexican face wandering around confused or unfamiliar. I didn't see one curiosity seeker who heard a WCW plug and decided to check it out. I'm not saying there wasn't one, but there weren't 10 and labeling it as a foreign wrestling product just kills it that much better. I don't think anyone at WCW has a real idea what the product is or why it works. And more importantly than nobody having an idea of what it is today, because up to this point, nobody needed to is that even today, does anyone care? How long has WCW attempted to work a deal with AAA or IWC for months? But in that period, how many WCW bigwigs who are making decisions in regard to promotion of and putting together this show have actually attended AAA shows live? The answer is one, Gary Juster, who watched the AAA show in New York. I know you're going to be fired up about that, but I do want to ask because before you defend it, were you having trouble getting buy-in for this idea? from any of the WCW brass. I ask that because it does feel like Tony Schiavone had been very negative about Lucha Libre in the Nitro era. Even on his podcast, he said it wasn't for him. It's not the wrestling he grew up on. And if you've listened to some of Jim Ross's podcasts, you know that he's sort of rooted in tradition as well. Was there a pushback internally and were you guys really ready to give this your best foot forward without everyone being on board? Oh man, there's so much to unpack or react to in that Dave Meltzer framework. Um, as I said, when when we started this, this was an experiment. This was me. I was going to college. This is my first day of college, right? This whole initiative was about trying to learn the marketplace. This was not about trying to force feed um, the Hispanic, the, the Mexican product, I'll quit calling it Hispanic. It was not about trying to force feed the Mexican Lucha Libre product into the TBS audience because what, you know, Dave Meltzer was too fucking ignorant to understand was that the TBS footprint had such a minuscule, if, if probably non-existent Hispanic audience. So what good would it have done for me to create a, a real um, intense or long-form kind of promotion trying to, trying to attract an audience within TBS that didn't fucking exist. Or, worse yet, try to force-feed a product that the American audience that we did have absolutely had no interest in, had never heard of before, and and eat up a bunch of television time trying to force feed a product into our our audience quickly. Now, my goal was to do it over a period of time, over a period of a couple of years, to slowly grow interest in this Hispanic product by slowly exposing it and creating interest kind of organically from the ground up. But to suggest, you know, in, 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 you know, someone like Dave, who's never really promoted anything, who's never really been in the business, who doesn't really understand, despite the 10,000 words that he puts out every week or whatever the fuck it is, you know, and the people, you know, the stooges that he talks to, and he tries to pretend 
what the wrestling business is about. He's never done it. He he only comments on other people that have and makes him try to tries to make himself sound intelligent in the process. But if you're really going to try to grow, and by the way, I, I I did it, you know, by introducing over a period on 94, 95, 96, 97, over the course of three or four or five years, I actually did elevate Lucha Libre and, and Mexican wrestling to the highest level it had ever been promoted to up until that point. But to suggest that I'm going to try to do it, you know, in a short period of time and kind of introduce this new product and get people up to date on it and promote the fuck out of it and build it up, you know, over the course of a pay-per-view promotion is a perfect example of just how ignorant Dave Meltzer really is and was. Let's keep it moving. In early September, Dave would write meetings were held this past week in LA involving WCW, AAA, Ron Scholar of IWC, Televisa, Galavision, and Univision in regard to promote the 11-6 pay-per-view. Details are sketchy right now, but we do know the main event will be Conan and Perro in a cage match, and it will be a five-match show from the LA Sports Arena. Galavision and Univision will promote the show to the Spanish audience. And we don't have any details, but rumors were floating that Galavision may return a second weekly show and that Univision may do a one-hour syndicated show, which will allow for a traditional American-style local house show promotion. WCW will promote the show to an English-speaking audience, introducing it as a new product, although the starting date for the promotion of the show, which was originally September 4th, has now been pushed back indefinitely. When, when there's this big meeting going down like this in L.A., would you attend or would you send a representative? No, I did not attend. Uh, as we mentioned, um, earlier, they're going to start airing sort of bits that, that promote the show, um, originally slated for the fourth, they're going to start airing on the 25th of September. Um, and Meltzer would say there weren't, there's not going to be any hard sell spots on TBS until the week before the event as to not compete with WCW's Halloween havoc show, which obviously has far more money invested in on the WCW side. And people are saying that the break even for when worlds collide was about 40,000 buys or a 0.2 buy rate, uh, which Meltzer would say hardly seems difficult considering the house show business. The group has done, let's talk about, you know, you guys are helping sort of promote this. What sort of skin in the game specifically did WCW have, were you just paying for satellite time Did they handle all of the uh, arena overhead or do you remember how that was divvied up? Yeah, for the most part, we were providing the back end, meaning the logistics, the relationship with the pay-per-view providers and all that came with that, which was, you know, substantial, by the way. If you didn't have a relationship with a pay-per-view company, you were pretty much prohibited from being in that industry. They didn't take one-offs is, I guess, a better way to say it, meaning, you know, DirecTV, which was the dominant pay-per-view provider at the time, unless you had a track record in pay-per-view and had been doing business with them for a long period of time, it was very difficult to get them to put you on their schedule. Because keep in mind, DirecTV, if they put you on, you know, they have a certain amount of real estate, uh, or they had, I should say, things have changed now because of streaming. But back then, in 94, 95, 96, you know, there was a, you know, weekends. You had Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You know, Sundays were, you know, the wrestling real estate. You know, Friday nights, Saturday nights were the fight real estate. You know, UFC was coming up and, and, emerged sometime, you know, in this window, whenever that was. So there, there was only, there was a limited amount of promotional real estate that DirecTV could, could 
provide. And they did. You know, if WCW put on a pay-per-view and we would spend, I'm just throwing numbers out now, these these aren't actual numbers, but let's say we had a $250,000 marketing budget. DirecTV would have a $250,000 marketing budget. They would also invest in the property, which, which is why if you didn't have a track record in pay-per-view, it was very, very difficult to get out of DirecTV schedule. And that was really the primary resource or value that WCW brought to the table is we could leverage our relationship with DirecTV and the other pay-per-view providers that would allow this experiment to, you know, exist. So that was really, I, I would say that was the majority of the equity that we had into this experiment. Ah. Oh. The segments that were supposed to be four minutes that we talked about earlier were cut down to 90 seconds. Why did, why did, why did you breathe so hard? Did, well, did I bore you to death? No, or? I just got ahead on something that I can't believe is real, and I'm going to get to it here. Uh, the, the promos that were supposed to air on main event that we talked about being maybe four minutes are actually 90 seconds. They air on September 25th and October 2nd, and, and whoever is putting these videos together has the monumental task of not only introducing characters and a style of wrestling, but basically selling the card in 90 seconds. So that's a tall order. And Gary Juster, who was in charge of this project for WCW presented the ideas early in the week to show tapes of a couple of matches to a lot of the WCW office staff and the matches he chose included Los Exoticos, which were presented as transvestites and the monkeys who dress up in monkey masks and wear tails. And Meltzer would say this caused everyone in the company to think it was the biggest joke they'd ever seen. And Bobby Heenan to run around talking about Mexican wrestling as a bunch of transvestite wearing tails running around and either Juster made an intellectual tactical or intelligent tactical move or a move that was exactly the opposite. What do you make of this report? <laughs> I know you're going to get fired up, but was Juster trying to be funny Did he legitimately think this was a way to sell it? I mean, you got to know a guy like Bobby Heenan is just going to shit on this, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just so funny listening to it. Oh God. And again, you have to put yourself back in this time, you know, this is 1994 and you still got a lot of guys that have been around, you know, like Bobby Heenan, they were around in the sixties and the seventies. And now, now he's, now I have a hard time getting through this. Now he's sitting there looking at a tape of the, whatever they're called, the monkeys and the transvestites and just up in masks. And it, I, I can understand how hard it would have been for guys like Dusty Rhodes and only Anderson and hell Hulk Hogan and a bunch of other people just sat on and look at this and go, wow, this could be really good. <laughs> Unless they were high, that might've worked. I, you know, I don't know what Gary was thinking. Gary wasn't the brightest bulb on the tree. Um, he, he was never really very successful. He was a good stooge. You know, Jim Barnett loved him. Um, he, he was great at spreading the, the rumors and innuendo around the office. And a lot of people in WCW, you know, thrived on that kind of shit. Um, but, you know, I you know, I don't know what was going through. I guess you'd have to ask Gary. It's worth mentioning. Bobby Heenan is an announcer at the time. And we've talked about what Tony Schiavone felt. Meltzer right. Chris Cruz and Mike Tanay will be doing the announcing on the show. Cruz was in Tijuana, making him only the second WWE employee or WCW employee to actually attend the show and appeared blown away by the show and was reading pages and pages of notes, trying to gain familiarity with the product. So the anchor of an uninterested Tony Schiavone doing the show has been eliminated. 
Uh, we haven't spent much time talking about Chris Cruz on this show. Why was he the right guy? Uh, it's not so much that he was the right guy. He was, you know, he was on the staff. He was interested. He didn't fit in anywhere else. He was excited about the prospect and was willing to put in the time and the work. Um, he was just there. I mean, it wasn't, there was any, and I don't mean that to be negative about Chris. Chris was a good announcer. There was, there was a lot of things about Chris that I liked and he's a good guy, but at this point in time, he just didn't really have much of a role, even though he was on staff. So it, it was more, is more of a case of, okay, you know, Tony's busy doing this. Everybody else is busy doing their things. We need somebody for this. Let's plug in Chris Cruz and he said, and loved it and was excited about it. So it was a good fit. Let's keep it moving here. Meltzer is going to describe Cruz and Tanay as a combo calling this pay-per-view saying they'll probably wind up being the single most prepared duo to ever work a pay-per-view show. You got to agree with that, right? Especially in the case of Mike Tanay. I mean, I, uh, you know, as we've been doing these podcasts now for a year and a half or so, and uh, quite often I have to go back and watch a pay-per-view from whenever, you know, 95, 96, 97, 98, whatever it is. And I listen to Mike today and I go, fuck, I was so right about him, you know, and putting him in that third man spot. He was so good at, at really providing color, in my opinion, the way color should be provided, meaning background information, making things feel more important than they really are. I, it's probably a wrong way to say it, but, but highlighting the, the aspects of someone's background or a match or their experience in a way that makes them feel larger than life. That's a much better way to say it. Mike Tanay was, he was a walking encyclopedia. And I just, to this day, I think he, Mike was, is one of the most underrated announcers in the last 20 years. He'll never get the recognition that he deserves, but in terms of adding credibility and interest and depth to a product that can, if you don't have someone like Mike could otherwise just not make any sense at all. There was nobody better than Mike today. The only thing I'm, I'm really, and I wish I, you know, I'm someday I'll run into Mike. I go to Vegas once or twice a year. I'll run into him and I'm going to look him up and I hope he's listening to this. The only thing that I think was a really a mistake in today's career was switching from color, which he was the best at, to play-by-play. His play-by-play work, in my opinion, was eh. It wasn't bad. It wasn't good. His color commentary was, I think, some of the best in the last 20 years. In October, Meltzer would write, it was finalized this past week that the uh, show will have a second main event. It will be double mask versus double hair with Octagon and El Hio Del Santo taking on the love machine and Eddie Guerrero making this match into a tag match and makes it the strongest lineup AAA and IWC have ever presented here in the U S and the biggest show from the group overall since triple mania in 93, he would also say top to bottom on paper. This is now the strongest pay-per-view in the United States of the year. He says, as far as the American market goes to say, this pay-per-view is of major historical importance, may be an understatement. With the possible exception of Bash at the Beach, this is the most important pay-per-view show of the year. 
And the idea here is if this is successful, IWC and AAA's joint venture essentially becomes number three behind the WWF and WCW. At any point, did anybody say, Hey, are we creating our own competition or did nobody view that at this point? Well, the statement that they made there that you just read is kind of, again, based in ignorance and just no understanding at all of the business. And I'm, I'm, let's just say for argument to, to make my point, Dave's opinion of the pay-per-view is accurate. I'll give him that. I'll give him 100% of that. But to suggest because you have one great pay-per-view, all of a sudden you're number three in a marketplace where you've got WWF at the time who was probably producing, uh, I don't know, 300 hours of content. Excuse me, three, well, it be 150, 150 to 200 hours of television a year and eight major pay-per-views. Year. And then you've got WCW who's doing roughly the same amount of content and well-established on, on domestic television and well-established in the pay-per-view industry to suggest that someone can come along and put on one pay-per-view card and be considered number three and possibly be creating competition for themselves is so reflective of how ignorant Dave was at that time. I mean, it's just, it's silly. I hate to be that guy, but he didn't say it was competition. I wondered if anyone else in the office thought, damn, why are we helping this other company here? I mean, if, if, if this becomes a real thing, what guarantees do we have moving forward? I ask that because a lot of wrestling people have really scratched their head and said, why in the world would ring of honor sort of be the, the backdoor, uh, funding or platform or whatever for all in to exist. They used the new Japan relationship to get some of those new Japan talent over. They used a lot of the ring of honor, uh, staff for the production element and the broadcast and some of their pay-per-view relationships and things like that. But what it did is it proved proof of concept that, you know, Cody and, and the bucks could put together a card that people would be interested in. And now fast forward, that was really essentially proof of concept for Tony Khan and AEW. Now other people may view that differently, but. Ring of Honor allowed all of this and had Ring of Honor just said no, would there have been proof of concept? Would Tony Khan have doubled down and put his money where his mouth is? Nobody really knows, but it is interesting to look at and say, what if Ring of Honor just didn't do it? Is any of this happening? And they did, so now it is. And now Ring of Honor seemingly is sort of circling the drain. AEW's blowing up. But that one decision to allow it to happen could have changed everything. And I just look back at this and wonder, had this thing really caught fire and we're going to talk about it, but had it really caught fire, was there a concern that while you're over here trying to dig out profit and you're not yet profitable, these other folks are coming along very quickly and doing similar houses right away. But they didn't have the television. They didn't have the distribution. They didn't have the relationships with the pay-per-view companies, and they weren't going to get them anytime soon. And they were provo- they were promoting and producing for a very small portion of the market. So to to answer your question, there, there are two different things really. You're, you're comparing sure, sure. you know the, the relationship we had in the pay-per-view you know back in 1994 to what what's going on now you know in 2019, and it's two 
entirely separate worlds. Dave's D- Dave's comment that he did make, if I heard you correctly, is that you know by by virtue of putting on this pay per view that they were now the number three promotion in the United States. That was the point that I was reacting to. You can put on a great pay-per-view targeting the Mexican audience and to suggest that because you did that, you're now number three is the point that I think is ignorant. Now, the question that you followed up with is, was anybody in WCW concerned about the fact that this was a great pay-per-view with great talent and promoting to the Mexican-American audience? Are we concerned that perhaps we're feeding the enemy? The answer to that is no, because they didn't have the distribution. They didn't have the television footprint. They didn't have the pay-per-view relationships. They weren't going to get them anytime soon. Still haven't, by the way. So, no, there, there was no concern. And I understand the the nature of your question as it relates to ring of honor and what's going on today and what this may have been perceived to be in 2000 or excuse me in 1994, but there's no correlation whatsoever. In my opinion, I do want to ask though, you know, there is always, you know, we know in a couple of years, there's going to be the perception that ECW is number three. And that perception is based on ECW's drawing ability with their houses. And they're finally having a foray into the pay-per-view market. Smoky mountain was never there. You know, they never drew the houses that ECW did. They certainly never had the pay-per-view, uh, but they were still a thriving, you know, regional independent promotion to go with a national pay-per-view and to have an opportunity to have some sort of syndicated television, even though it way, it may be way down, like compared to one and two, they would have to be number three by default. Wouldn't they put a value on that? You know, if, 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 you know, look at, <laughs> it's interesting and I've fallen victim of this myself, you know, look at TNA for a long time. TNA considered themselves to be the number two wrestling organization in the United States. Well, okay. Let's put a valuation on that. What, what, what is being number one mean? If number one is a $500 million a year annual revenue business in WWE and number two means, well, I don't know, $30 million and you're losing money. What the fuck good does it to be number two? Well, I'm not arguing that, but I'm just saying it's, it's much like you and I saw to talk about ratings sometimes where, you know, the potential salesperson will come into your office and, you know, sling you a PDF and say, Hey, we're number two in our demo, which is 37 year old housewives in Connecticut who have house cats. You know, I mean, like everybody claims to be number one in something. I, I, I don't know. Let's keep it moving here. I do want to mention that. No, no, no. But I mean, that's a good point. I mean, that, that is a good point. And I think even today, you know, if we're, <clears throat> as you did with Ring of Honor, you know, kind of connecting the dots between 1994 and 2019, let's look at today. You know, WWE is clearly the number one wrestling company in the world. I don't, I can't remember what their annual revenues are. Anybody that's listening to this a can fucking lot. Look, it's a lot. Look, look it up. But you know, their global foot footprint is massive. And if anybody wants to come along and say, well, we're the number two wrestling company in the world. Okay. Well, let's compare numbers, not just number one and number two, but the revenues behind number one and number two, what are your revenues or, or better yet, what's your profit margin? How much money are you really delivering to the bank? Or would you be surprised? I mean, realistically, I know you, you're not privy to any of it. You've never been to a show. You don't, you don't, you don't speak to anyone there. If you had to guess, AEW still in the red? 
I don't know. I, I, yeah, I would, well, I don't, my first answer is, I don't know. I have no idea. And unless somebody would open up their books and, and I could see it with my own eyes, all I have is an opinion. And my opinion isn't worth any more than anybody else's at this point. But based, but <laughs> with an asterisk, if anything that I hear is true, and I believe some of it is, it's going to be a long time before they're profitable. Well, and they, can, they, they can still say they're number two, I guess. Right. If they want. But if you're going to compare the numbers that really matter, not the numbers that you're selling from a marketing perspective and, and bragging about, but if you're going to actually compare revenues, uh, I don't well, not necessarily just revenues, but bottom line. I mean, the cost of doing TV, you've told us before, is very, very expensive. I mean, if you had to freestyle what it costs to, you know, put up a live weekly two-hour wrestling show, just from a satellite and production and insurance and, you know, not paying the boys, but just everything else, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars a week, is it not? If I, <clears throat> if this was a game show and I was... <laughs> I was a contestant and I had to guess, I would say if they're spending AEW spending anything less than $400,000 an episode, I'd be surprised. And, and there you go. Like just realistically, they're probably not selling forth $400,000 worth of tickets to their live events every single week. So therefore, you know, they have to have a little bit of red ink. Obviously we don't know what the terms of their TNT deal are, what the advertising looks like, but the concept is it's a new business. It's a startup. Those businesses and they, most business owners know this. You run in the red for a year or two or whatever. Some, some companies or five or five. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you look at even some of the big tech companies, they were in the red ink for a long, long time. And then they become hugely profitable when they go public. And that's just not the way the traditional indie wrestling promoter looks at it. He needs to get a return on his money right away. And, and, and wrestling is big business. When you start to talk about satellite time and, and live weekly TV every week. And, but I, I do think we've, ex, we've sort of beat up on the, the number one, number two enough. Let's do talk about the uh, joint pay-per-view largely financed by WCW. It's in uh, Los Angeles. It's going to be a hit. We know that, but the thing that's interesting about this is the way the WCW relationship doesn't go exactly as we may have hoped. Meltzer would write. However, the inherent problems of WCW being a part of this equation, which have uh, been gone into, have resulted, as expected, almost too predictably, like clockwork. After putting up the money to finance the pay-per-view, WCW totally dropped the ball in promoting the event on its TV. Initially, the plan was to bring the top stars of the pay-per-view to Atlanta to shoot matches, angles, and interviews leading to the show, and it was decided that that money could be saved if instead they simply aired footage from Mexico on TBS with the major angles and matches to get the wrestlers over. Of course, AAA, notorious for doing business at a slower than a snail's pace, was late with the tapes. WCW, once they got the tapes, decided they weren't of broadcast quality, although that decision was made with more than enough time remaining to still bring the wrestlers to Atlanta for a taping and do it right, although at that point it would have been a rush job at best. But by this time, WCW was in upheaval because it had to justify its own salary structure and expenses and make the decision to the ultimate hotshot angle of Flair Hogan career versus career at Halloween Havoc. So this is an interesting concept that, um, 
you know, we had an idea. We're going to bring guys in. Okay. Now we've decided we could just air the tape. And to your point, what's it really going to help in TBS? You just want to show that you're a good partner, but then AAA can't get the tapes there on time. And when they do, they're not to turn our standards. This just feels like uh, a ready shoot aim, but that's probably common with a lot of quote, so, sort of old school wrestling folks, not necessarily on the WCW side on the AAA side. I mean, you even see in the report here, it's reported that AAA works their business at slower than a snail's pace. Was that part of your frustration here that it feel, it felt like everyone was moving at different speeds? No, <clears throat> nothing that you just, um, communicated from Meltzer's dirt sheet was true. Okay. It was, it was never, there was never an intention, a plan, even a conversation of bringing top AAA stars into WCW and doing something on our shows that never, that never happened. That, that is fiction that somehow Dave came up with. I, I don't know how maybe Gary Jester told him, I don't know, <laughs> maybe he made it up, but that was never the plan ever. Let, let, so let me, so, let the, so the, the whole premise of what you just suggested and the, the, the situation that you just suggested is a false premise. It was never part of the plan. Check this out. Eric Bischoff, after approving of spending several hundred thousand dollars to put this show together, changed course and didn't want to get anything over on his television. The promotion wound up limited to Chris Cruz event centers, which while well done, probably left the vast majority of viewers thinking to themselves, who are these people he's talking about? Those alone are hardly enough to sell a new pay-per-view concept, especially during a 30 day period where the state of pay-per-view is in a wrestling overload. So you see here, he's saying that you got cold feet and didn't want to invest the several hundred thousand dollars. I'm sure you're going to call bullshit on that as well. It's just, none of it is true. I mean, I, 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 it's getting hard to even get angry about this stuff anymore. I mean, it's just, there's so much fantasy and fiction in, you know, Dave's reporting that it's just, uh, I mean, it's just tiresome. There was nothing true about that. Our, our goal from the beginning was to provide the logistics, the back end. Our goal from the beginning was to slowly introduce, not bring in superstars and try to force feed them to the American audience. It would have been stupid. That would have been the worst decision in the world. It wouldn't have made any sense to anybody outside of Dave Meltzer and his minions that, you know, think he knows shit. It, 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 none of, none of it was true. This was, okay, here's an opportunity for us to, number one, pair up with established promotions within this Mexican-American or Mexican uh, wrestling uh, industry that's becoming more popular and is, is becoming interesting domestically. There may be a way for us to find a way to become a part of that. Let's provide a minimal amount of, of logistical logistical support our relationships our pay-per-view relationships so forth our television syndication relationships let's see if we can use our back end to help support this and slowly determine if this makes any sense and i'm going to go back to what i said a little while ago the slow and grow strategy that i had eventually played out very very successfully but if you listen to dave Meltzer. In that day, you would think that I was putting all of my eggs in this one big pay-per-view basket, and I had to make it successful. We had to put all of our resources behind it, which would have been fucking stupid. This That wasn't our strategy from the get-go. Dave is assuming he understood my strategy. He was wrong. 
he's projecting, which he often does, almost exclusively does, when he reports on things that he knows nothing about. He's projecting what his fantasies are. His fantasy was, most likely at the time, that WCW was going to put all of its horses and all of its resources behind this big pay-per-view and try to make this huge thing and you know change the freaking world. That wasn't my strategy. My strategy was let's put my fo- let's put our feet in the water. Let's get a taste of this. Let's learn what we don't know. Let's learn as we grow. And over a period of time, let's us establish ourselves as one of the leading providers of Hispanic, Mexican American, however you want to frame it, you know, content in the United States, which by the fucking way, we did. We very, very successfully. But if you listen to what Dave said and what he wrote and you're communicating to me, he's coming at it from a completely different angle that had nothing to do with the angle that we were coming at it from. I didn't get cold feet. I did exactly what I intended to do. I I, I didn't back off anything. I stuck to my plan. The, the event centers were part of the original plan. That's all that there was ever going to be. There was never going to be flying top stars in and making them part of WCW programming. That's a, you know, that's a fantasy that Dave Meltzer had in the shower. That's not, that had nothing to do with our business strategy. <sighs> we should mention this number three thing is going to come up again here. I want to briefly mention it and hopefully you don't go off on a rant and hang up on me and fly to Alabama and want to karate man me. Um, those dismissing this promotion as having no chance to make it in the U S have their heads buried in the sand and need to come out for air and a reality check. That question has already been answered in 1994. This group will gross more American dollars spent in this country at the gate than ECW SMW or USWA. If this show beats the odds and actually does pay-per-view business, it could very possibly, uh, run six U S shows and outgross all three of the aforementioned promotions combined for the year. It will average on a per show basis more than any American promotion probably ever has in history because of its limited exposure and running basically very few shows. It is nowhere close to the WWF or even WCW when it comes to popularity and really is miles behind either, but it is a solid number three already. Number two, as far as house shows go. (laughs) And, uh, the question is, is there crossover potential beyond the Mexican American market? That's the unproven question. But the similarities here to AW just for a minute, you know, when, before they were running weekly television, when they were just running these big shows, whether it was, you know, something that was free on bleach report, or it was a pay-per-view or even their first TV, these shows were selling out immediately and it's, it's stronger than death. But then when you get to TV, now that becomes a new animal, you've got to run every single week. And it's just fascinating that before AEW was doing it, AAA and IWC were doing it here. Uh, I do want to mention that it doesn't look like this show when worlds collide, which we're, we're talking about today is actually going to be all that successful based on what we know about promoting wrestling, except when it comes to Hispanic wrestling, uh, Meltzer would say, as for the live show, the lineup is strong enough that it should sell out, but there are outside factors that make 10 to 15,000 more realistic. The advance for the show at press time was only 2000. And the press time advance for the first sellout was only 3000, but that's still well ahead of where we are for the last show. And there's always walk up. Do you remember that's just as a sidebar, there being any show in particular in your WCW promoting history where you were so concerned with advanced sales that 
I mean, you were really nervous about walk up or did you always know, well, this is a walk up market. It's going to be fine. Or does a show in particular stand out as being, oh shit, what are we going to do? Let's go back to the beginning of your Dave Meltzer commentary. How did, how did Dave's prediction work out? Well, it didn't. Okay. Just want to make that clear to answer your question. Um, you know, there was never a show that look going back to what I said earlier, when we first started this WCW had decimated its own marketplace by giving away free tickets so often that, uh, uh, up until about 94, 95, when things started really turning around, I didn't even really pay attention to the numbers. Uh, they were so bad, you know, Mike, it's one of the reasons why it's, it's funny, you know, listening back to some of the stuff and analyzing some of the stuff, you know, one of the f- first things I did when I, got any influence at all in management at WCW was advocate to shut down all the house shows, which, you know, I was a heretic in the minds of, you know, some of the traditional wrestling people in WCW at the time, you know, Bob Dew in particular, and a guy by the name of Don Sandifer, their jobs were primarily live event business. And here I was coming out and saying, look, let's just pull the plug on this shit because you're losing money every time you walk out the door. You know, I'll, I'll never forget this. I may have covered this once or twice, but now I'm going to do it here because I think it's relevant to this conversation. There was a point in time when we were really analyzing WCW's business and trying to find a way, as you pointed out earlier, to make that first buck. And we sit down and we'd look at the financials and we looked at the house show business and they're doing like 220 dates a year and losing $7 million in the process. I'm picking out numbers here. It was, it was over 200 days a year. But whatever the number was, we were losing five, six, seven million million. And then when we were charged, we as a company was charged by Turner Broadcasting and said, okay, come back to us with a plan. How are you going to fix this? Well, Bob Dew and Don Sandifer, their idea was to do more house shows. Well, if you're losing money every time you walk out the door, if every time you pack up your shit and you go to an arena, you're losing money. How the fuck does going out the packing up your shit and going out the door and going to another arena and losing more money make any sense? Right? And that was for six months internally, that was a huge fight. And I got more heat, not only from Bob Dew and Don Sandifer, but a lot of the you know, a lot of the boys who were making money. <laughs> you know, they were being paid going to house shows and it, it, but it just, the math just didn't make any sense. And when I, you know, when I hear, when we have a conversation like this and I think about just the basic business elements of trying to make money in the wrestling business and how you turn a profit and how you become profitable, the idea of having these live events and, you know, as Dave Meltzer pointed out, oh, these events gross. Yes, they gross, but they don't make any money. Yeah, you could when, – when Bob Dew and, and, and Don Sandover said, yeah, but we go out, well, we drew $10,000 in Norfolk, Virginia. Yeah, but motherfucker, you lost $15,000 in the process. The gross number doesn't matter. It's what you net. It's what you put in the bank. And that's why when I, I, I don't get – I don't get angry at you, Conrad, but I, I get frustrated when I hear the kind of commentary that is 
surrounded this industry for so long that was pervaded by people like Dave Meltzer who doesn't have a clue of what he's talking about. And not just Dave, others, not picking on Dave. We just happened to use him as a reference, and I'm grateful for that, by the way, because it gives us something to talk about and a reference point, and it gives me something to get pissed off about, which I, for whatever twisted reason I seem to need. But it's just so much disinformation out there. I'm sorry, I went off on a tangent. Let's talk about the different styles of wrestling. You know, the, uh, Meltzer would say the difference is that American wrestling has evolved into primarily a television product and promotion is based largely around TV. So the wrestlers work the cameras and the style has based and evolved a lot with what works within the confines of the small screen and Mexican style is based on what works at the arenas. And there's really no significant television. And the major difference is the manner in which bumps are taken because Mexican rings are traditionally as hard as granite wrestlers will take bumps and sell differently. So to an American fans, eye, you know, what you see in the ring from a Mexican standpoint looks sloppy or fake. And Mexicans would say that American style looks sloppy or fake because of the same differences. And this is obviously going to be a challenge. If you guys are going to try to push into a national television product, would you agree with the assessment that the styles are, are greatly different and it was going to take a bit of an education process? And, and is, was that a concern of yours? I, I would agree that the, the styles are dramatically different. I don't think it has anything to do with the type of rings that they're in. I mean, I, it's much more cultural, I think, than anything else. If you look at the, just look at the presentation, you know, go look at, you know, Lucha Libre today, go back and look at it from 1994. I think from an American, an American audience's point of view, it was almost comical. It was almost slapstick. It wasn't that, you know, the American audience looked at it and said, wow, these guys are sloppy and American performers aren't. It's the whole presentation of Lucha Libre, especially back in the nineties was, I mean, I'm going to admit it. I used to smoke a bowl and watch it on Saturday afternoon because it was fucking funny as hell. I mean, it was it, it was just a different form of of wrestling. And the differences were really more cultural than physical. Talk to me a little bit about minis. The, the opening match on the show, or one of the big matches on the show, is, is a match with four minis, including... Masquerita Sagrada, who is going to be a big star relatively for the WWF in a few years, he's going to come out of, uh, uh, the Royal rumble in 1997. So I would say the year of 1997 in particular was probably his most mainstream from an American standpoint. Uh, but he's in there with who Meltzer is going to say are the four best minis of all time, as far as in ring work goes and a generation or an era back from this, you know, even the late eighties, but certainly through the seventies and eighties, um, quote unquote, midget wrestling in the United States was a big deal. I mean, it was felt like it was included on every wrestling poster for a long time, eight big matches plus midgets and one girl's match or however they promoted it. Obviously wrestling has evolved and nobody even uses that term anymore, but a minis match. Why was this not something since you enjoyed it personally, not something that we saw in WCW. There just wasn't a lot of, uh, of mini talent available. Um, it was, 
Yeah. I I can't say that I really enjoyed it. Um, I had an uneasy feeling about it, even as a fan, uh, before I got into the business. I understood it. I understood why it was on the card. I understood why it was an attraction. Um, as we've talked about before, I've always believed that wrestling is a good wrestling card or a good wrestling television show or whatever, however you want to frame it, pay-per-view, whatever, is a little bit of a buffet. You've got to have a little bit of everything for everybody. And typically, you know, wrestling involving minis or short people <laughs> um, was humor-based. It, it, it was fun. It was entertaining. It wasn't taken seriously. Uh, for the most part, there may have been exceptions. But for the most part, it was that comedic break within an otherwise uh, less comedic show. And I, I, I never did really feel comfortable with it. That's number one. Number two, there just wasn't a lot of active, talented um, minis available. The opening match on the show, it gets four stars. The next match is, uh, I'm going to screw this name up. Fuerza Guerrera. Madonna's boyfriend and psychosis. They're the bad guys. They get a win over Ray Mysterio jr. Heavy metal and Latin lover. They got 12 minutes and 54 seconds, a four-star match. The Meltzer would say was a one man Ray Mysterio match with him doing a Frankensteiner off the top rope, a Frankensteiner off the apron onto the floor, etc. He says, because of Mysterio, this was an excellent match, but, uh, four stars. I mean, just, this is the breakout performance of so the breakout time of, of Mysterio's life where not only is he, you know, over like Rover in Mexico, but he's getting attention on a worldwide stage. And, you know, fast forward to 2019, you know, here, here he is in WWE. Uh, his son is now breaking into the industry or uh, race, um, involved with, uh, Cain Vasquez in, in some of the highest profile, you know, promotions you can be involved in over in Saudi Arabia. So, I mean, and it's, it's really fascinating how far Ray has come. And <clears throat> I don't remember the match. Can't really comment on the match itself, but I can comment on Ray and what a just a phenomenal athlete, phenomenal entertainer he's become. Next up, we've got Pegasus Kid and Two Cold Scorpio and Tito Santana taking on Jerry Estrada, La Parca, and Blue Panther. They go 14 minutes and 51 seconds, three and a half stars. Pegasus Kid, if you're not familiar, is Chris Benoit. And he is outstanding here. Uh, he is under a WCW contract. He is the lone exception uh, to cold Scorpio and Tito Santana, obviously very familiar with the American fans and uh, not the best work from those guys, but still a three and a half star match. Really, really well done. Uh, I should mention that, uh, Meltzer would write to WCW's credit. It's a major positive that didn't allow their own wrestlers to appear on the show. Although Pegasus kid proved to be the exception to the rule that bringing an outside talent to these shows hurts the matches that usually don't get over. But then again, how many wrestlers are there of his style of versatility and caliber in the world today? So just as much as this was uh, sort of a breakout show for Rey Mysterio, it's a coming out party for a whole new audience about Chris Benoit, right? Yeah, you could say that for sure. You know, and Chris was very well established in Japan and was doing very well on his own. But yeah, definitely. We should mention the next match is what everybody is talking about. And you've heard about it. I'm sure it's Octagon and El Hio Dos Santo taking on Love Machine and Eddie Guerrero. Love Machine is Art Bar. 
It's two out of three falls. It's double mask versus double hair. It's 22 minutes and 29 seconds. Meltzer would say live. This was one of the best matches he's ever seen. And one of the two best matches of the year in the United States, he gave it five stars. Of course, Art Bar and Eddie Guerrero lose. And as a result have most of their hair cut off with scissors before going backstage and having the rest taken off with trimmers. Uh, but this is, um, quite the performance Meltzer would ride on the heels of this show. Love machine in some aspects is the best all around performer in the group. And Eddie Guerrero was easily the best pure wrestler on the card that night. This is, uh, unfortunately the last, I mean, really the big break that Art bar had been looking for, he had bounced around a little bit. He had a little bit of trouble, uh, with Rod in, in the Northwest. And then he would pop up in WCW as the juicer, which is basically a Beetlejuice ripoff. He's looking for the success that a lot of people say his talent deserves. He has maybe the best frog splash in the history of the business. Eddie Guerrero would use that for the rest of his career as a tribute to art bar. And I say tribute because just seven days at 17 days after this show, um, unfortunately art bar would pass away. So this is really his biggest match, most important match, most notable match. But sadly, one of his last as well. When you saw what Art Bar was capable of here, we know you're going to bring in Eddie Guerrero. What were the plans for Art Bar? I mean, did you think, God, what can I do with this guy? I didn't really, you know, I was interested in Eddie. And again, we've talked about this, you know, six months or a year ago. You know, the reason that Eddie and Chris and Dean came in is because of their association with New Japan Pro Wrestling. Art Bar didn't have that association. At least I don't think he did at the time. So, you know, I didn't bring Eddie in because of the performance that occurred on the show. I brought Eddie in eventually because of the the, the long-term relationship that I had with New Japan Pro Wrestling. So, the, you know, I'm not taking anything away from Art Bar, but he, he wasn't on my radar. Eddie became on my radar because of that relationship with New Japan. Well, if you're listening to this show and you're looking for one match to watch, you need to go watch this one. Octagon and Ohio Dos Santo taking on Love Machine and Eddie Guerrero. Two out of three falls. One of the best matches you'll ever see. Your main event, Pero Aguayo and Conan in a steel cage. 17 minutes, 54 seconds. A bloody, bloody match. And Meltzer would say it was actually better on pay-per-view than live because there was so much drama and storyline to it. He gave it three and a half stars. But what's interesting about this show... First of all, we should mention that, uh, Chris Cruz and Mike Tanay did a phenomenal job of, of getting over the storylines and the background and Meltzer would say it was probably the show that he got the most comments about the commentary, but the thing that unfortunately the commentators have to relay is that the show was ending early and it's 40 minutes early. You know, we talked about how, um, important the times were. Well, a lot of the matches were rushed and they had two hours and 47 minutes of satellite time earmarked for WCW and they got it done, uh, with time left to spare, you know, obviously this is the, the polar opposite of what we saw with Halloween havoc, 1998, where the show ran long, you guys belabored the point enough here, but maybe too much. So since the show went so short, I still don't think it really hurt the matches that much. When you look through and you see three and a half, five stars, three and a half, four stars, four stars, it was a great show, but I guess they had a little more time. Uh, you haven't watched this show in a long time. When did you watch this pay-per-view live or did you get a tape after the fact, or were you in attendance? 
I watched it. Uh, I watched it on tape. I thought it was a great show. I mean, I honestly got it. You know, when you and I talked about doing the show, it's like, oh, did we do that? You know, because again, I hate, and I don't mean to to diminish it, but it it was an experiment. It was a one off, in my opinion. It was a chance to learn um, uh, about an aspect of the business or or a market within the business that we had no experience in. So this this wasn't something that I invested a ton of resources in uh, and was 100% you know, dedicated to in a long-term basis. It was an opportunity to kind of experiment and see what is possible. But I think the overall quality of the product was pretty good. I think it's unfortunate that better than pretty good. It was great. I think it's unfortunate that you know, it did go off early, but again, that we weren't producing the show. We were distributing the show. Um, that, that has to hang on the people that were producing it. It is what it is. It was what it was, and I'm glad that people enjoyed it. I'm glad that, you know, Dave found something to get excited about. I do feel like we should mention here that uh, you're probably going to get a little bit of shit for saying that you watched it on tape, and a lot of people would wonder, what was so important? Well, when this is going down, this is the same week where Randy Savage would leave the World Wrestling Federation to sign with World Championship Wrestling. Man, you think you had a lot going on in 1994? Holy shit. A little bit little bit and 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 by the way i was at the event you know i did watch it on tape and i was at the event but there was a lot of shit going on in 1994 um this was just one of them we should also mention that the uh readers of the wrestling observer would vote you know for how they viewed the show thumbs up thumbs down thumbs in the middle we talk about that all the time at the time this is probably the highest rated pay-per-view ever or certainly one of them 97.8% thumbs up 1.5% thumbs down 0.7% thumbs in the middle and it's nearly unanimous uh, the best match is the tag match with Guerrero and Art Bar uh, the worst match cuz you have to pick one is unfortunately the one with Scorpio and Tito Santana and uh, Chris Benoit uh, that trios match but this is a uh, sort of ahead of its time pay-per-view and what a critical moment it was when WCW would try something different and work with another promotion. And I think you could see a lot of similarities with what we've seen in wrestling over the last 18 months or so. And now, you know, it's a, it's a fitting time here on the 25 year anniversary to get in our time machine and go back and take a look at what happened when worlds collide. Uh, coming up next week, right here on the show, we're going to get back a little old school WCW action. We're doing clash of the champions 29 and Eric, if you thought you had this week kind of rough as I beat you up and quoted a lot of Meltzer stuff about the triple a show, this one, buddy, this is one of the worst clashes ever. Do you remember off the top of your head? What the shit show was? <laughs> no, but as soon as I get off this podcast, I'm going to go look it up. How about you had Jim Duggan beat Steve Austin in 17 seconds? God, that's awesome. How about Hulk Hogan sting? Well, they're on, they're teaming up and they need a third partner. So you'll look no further than Dave Sullivan. And they're going to take on Evad, Evad, Evad. I loved Evad. Oh God. I can't wait to carve you up next week. Oh. Evod was great. One of the best ideas we've ever had at WCW. What about the butcher? That's your why. That's your why didn't get over. The butcher. Come on, brother Bruda. The butcher. Avalanche. Come on. Kevin Sullivan. Mister T is the special guest referee. Next week, boys and girls, mark your calendar. 
It's Eric Bischoff's <laughs> funeral. Clash of the Champions 29. I think I'm going to have my wife sit in on this one. She'll try to justify this nonsense. <laughs> we'll see you next week and every week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.